Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of On the Road with Cadence. I'm Matt Bursky with Cadence Capital Partners. For those of you who don't know, Cadence is a capital markets advisory firm that specializes in raising institutional equity for real estate development uh, and, and value-add projects. Today's guest is Nick Jurley, who is the founder of ReVenture Consulting. ReVenture, um, they provide commercial real estate data analytic market selection, as well as investor relations to uh, owners, uh, investors, as well as uh, developers across the country. Nick and I have known each other for quite some time, and we bonded over, uh, over data. Uh, Nick was intrigued by our scoring methodology that we use to evaluate real estate. Uh, and, and so I think we've nerded out over data when one too many times, Nick. So uh, thanks for, thanks course, for Matt, joining me today. Glad, glad to be on here. Um, it's a long time coming and uh, appreciate the introduction. And yeah, I know we did, we did bond over data. And I think, um, you know, real estate's in this interesting point right now in 2021, where I think we're starting to advance a little bit in terms of levels of data, anal data analysis in the market. But many corners of real estate are still kind of very old school. Right, very, very gut, gut decision making, uh, decision making not based on a lot of kind of data inputs, and you know I think both of us are trying to change that a little bit for the better, um, and you know use more of like real time data and actually have a fundamental decision making process. Uh, you know, in my case, when it comes to advising clients on which markets to invest in, right, and I guess you know in your case and helping um, you know select the, the right deals. Uh, you know, for capital raising, things like that. Yeah, I, I would, one of the things that I think probably the most consistent theme that we hear from, from family offices, and I, and I know you work with family offices as well, is that they love the story, the anecdotal perspective that developers are so great at. Um, they're, they're the ultimate salespeople talking about their project, their market, um, why it's amazing, why it's blowing up. The family offices that we, that, that the feedback that they give is always around how the best developers from their perspectives can tell that great story with passion and, and, and that's important. But the best of the best layer in data to support that anecdotal perspective. And that's one of the things that we try to do with our scoring is we the bridge be that bridge between a data driven uh, perspective as well as that anecdotal perspective, and I think we've done a good job of helping developers um, if they're not already strong in that area uh, to help them get to that next level. And one of the things that uh, I hear is that, um, and and you and I've talked about this, that I try to educate developers on is that real estate is local. But capital is not. And, you know, you might have a family office that is sitting in Dallas, Texas. Well, they're not just investing in Dallas, right. te Texas. They tell us that they want to go to Nashville, Charlotte, Raleigh, Durham, uh, and Denver, right? So for us, it's always helping to understand their mandate so we can send the right data or send the right deals over. But, you know, through that process, you know, if a developer's got a project in Nashville, he's not just competing with 
uh, other deals in Nashville. She he or she's competing with, you know, the other markets mentioned and and others as well. So you know, I know I know that that's something you've worked with uh, developers on, especially site selection in 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 getting down into the weeds on on sub market yeah, selection as well. A hundred percent. And you know, it's it's interesting. I, I totally relate to that that perspective about you know capital being national. In my previous life, I worked for a debt and equity fund out of Boston, and I was an underwriter. And I would travel all around the U.S. You know, and we would look at funding different deals, whether they be multifamily or office or hospitality, and all these different markets across the country. And I would meet all of these local borrowers, investors, and realtors, brokers. And I was struck at how I felt like I was being sold the same story in every single market, right? Like they wanted my capital. You know, we were a lender and we were a preferred equity investor. They wanted the capital. And whether I went to Corpus Christi or Austin or Salt Lake or St. George, Utah, I heard the same exact story every single time. It was always, uh, this is where all the technology is. This is where all the millennials are going, you know, both on a macro and micro basis on a level. And after a while, I started getting tired of doing that. So I knew that it wasn't true everywhere. Like I knew it was true in some locations, but I knew that I was getting sold a bag of goods the other half of the time. And I wanted the ability to be able to definitively answer questions like, where are the most millennials moving to? Which cities have the most migration? Which cities have the biggest shortage in multifamily housing? Like I wanted the data, uh, the hard data, to be able to answer that question. And so when I left that company two years ago, I started Reventure Consulting. It's kind of a way to help my former self, right? Give my former self the tools necessary to say, all right, here are the top 20 markets in terms of millennial growth. Here are the top 20 markets in terms of adding jobs relative to how many multifamily permits and units are being built. Right, so we can identify where the biggest shortages are uh, in a really quantitative way. So I totally relate to that because if you're a national capital provider, whether you're a lender or a family office, it could be pretty frustrating to hear, let's just say, the same story sold over and over again without um, you know it being substantiated. Well, that's a good point. I, you know, I think one of the, especially if you're not, uh, you know, or you don't have someone on your team that that helps synthesize all the data that's available. I mean, from your perspective, you know, and you do this day in and day out, I mean, it's literally your world. Um, you know, how do you avoid data paralysis? Are, are you, are there certain data points or sources that you think developers should focus on first, especially if, if they feel like they need to get better, uh, better at integrating data to back up those stories to your point, you know, some of them were right. The developers right. that you talked to were right, but they just needed to go just a little bit farther to provide the data to back up to make sure that that is a fact-based perspective. So, what should what sources should data from developers? Uh, That's that a really great on? question because a lot of my clients struggle with that that data paralysis that you said. It's like there's so many different data sources: ProStar, RealPage, right? Like, how do I make heads or tails? And um, don't get me wrong; those sources are great. You know, like if you want to find out what the submarket occupancy is, the specific multifamily market, Postar is a great source for that, right? But if you want to just zoom out for a second and ask the question, like, what are the markets with the most growth? 
uh, and the most growth relative to how many units are being earned. Right? That's actually a harder question to answer with something like Real Pager Postar. Uh, you need to look more to sources like the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is the government entity that comes out with monthly real-time reporting on jobs. You need to look to U.S. Census Bureau uh, data on permitting. You can see every single month down to actually the county level how many permits are being pulled for new construction of multifamily properties. And looking at that data in real time, uh, in both the short term and the long term, can then really support what your narrative is saying, right? So if you're in one of these high growth markets, let's say, you know, Nashville or Phoenix, and you know that there's a lot of job growth, right? You know there's a lot of migration, but you just don't quite know how to substantiate that. Data from the U.S. US Census Bureau can do that. We can look at, all right, what's the inbound migration into Phoenix over the last one year and over the last five years? How does that compare to how many permits have been pulled for multifamily units? And not only that, how does that compare to every other city in the U.S.? So now we can definitively say, yeah, there's a shortage of housing in Phoenix. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the U.S. Census Bureau are two of the main sources that I use with my clients because those data points are real time. They come out every single month and they go back 30 years as well. So you have both the short term and the long term covered with your, your data to your investors. Well, I th I, actually, that's a good point. I mean, we just uh, finished up a capital raise for an opportunity zone development in Phoenix, downtown Phoenix, which that was my obsession. Our developer was is really strong. They're actually headquartered out of Austin. Uh, they are, I would say, a perfect case study of utilizing data to support this the anecdotal perspective and the thesis on on why there, why now. Um, but one of the biggest challenges, and we knew that it was going to happen coming in, um, you know, the developer and I, we knew that that there was going to be concerns about supply or oversupply. And one of my uh, pet peeves with different family offices and capital groups is they say, well, it's, it's really oversupply there. And I think there's a, some element of groupthink going on um, because then I would ask the question, well, why do you think that? And, and is there an equation that you use internally to determine undersupplied or oversupplied? And unfortunately, the answer was always no. And I'm sure some groups do have a formulaic approach, um, but using that as an example, when you when you're looking deep into uh, oversupply, and that's sometimes the narrative. How are you uh, overcoming that objection, or you know, realizing that yeah, actually it is being overbuilt, and, and perhaps there's another market that's a, a better yeah a better that's a great question. One of my favorite metrics to look at is what I call permit percentage. So that's taking the amount of permits pulled for you know, multifamily housing, but it can also be for all types of housing in the economy over the previous 12 months. So the amount of permits pulled, you know, it takes about, once a permit is pulled, takes, let's just say 12, 18 months often for delivery, depending on the type of structure. So you, get, you have a good, already a good future perspective with permit being pulled, but then divide that number by the total number of jobs in the local economy. And that's how you get permit percentage. And that gives you a great metric. So you can say, all right, the permit percentage in Phoenix today is X. I think it's around 2.2 or 2.3% uh, T12 permits divided by total jobs. 
how does that compare first to what Phoenix was historically? Right? Because I suspect, especially with Phoenix, a lot of people still have some agenda because it got hit so hard in the last housing crash. Right? So how does the current percentage look today in Phoenix compared to 06, 07? Oh, we see it's actually, they're permitting way less today as a percentage of total jobs in Phoenix than they were 15 years ago. All right. We feel good. We feel better about that. Then the next step would be to say, all right, how does Phoenix compare in permitting today to other growth markets? And maybe 2.2%, that's a little elevated, but it's going to be elevated in any type of growth market. But it's actually much less than a market like Raleigh. It's much less than a market like Austin. So you get comfortable with looking at the historical perspective and then also the contextual real-time perspective and saying, all right, Phoenix, it's, it's, it's less than it used to be. And it's also less permitting and supply than markets like Raleigh and Austin. So now you have these solid benchmarks to um, really you know, guide, guide your decision-making process. Well, that's great. No, I, th I think that's the right approach. I think obviously everybody can have <clears throat> different variances off that, but you know, a good way to plant the flag with a perspective backed up by data to analyze whether a market is truly undersupplied or oversupplied. And, and to your point, I mean, really, it all, it's all predicated on you know job growth and and in migration and in that point where you could make the argument that. On the surface, maybe it seems oversupplied, but if you really peel the layers back and look into the data, it actually could be undersupplied, right? And then it's just a matter of aligning what the product and programming is compared to what that growth looks like, right? And, and I think you know one of the things that you uh, often often talk about with with me, and, and we talk about that millennial growth, um, and then making sure that you're you're aligning the, the programming as, as it relates to multifamily for that tenant target. Um, you know, I think there's quite a few different metrics out there. We talked about sources, but you know, when you're when you're advising clients on submarkets, what are a few of the metric pieces that you you focus on that says, okay, this is a green light submarket versus yeah, a red light submarket? That's another great question. Um, you know, the first thing I look at there is the macro, actually. So do we have a green light on feeling good about the market? In the case of Phoenix, the answer is yes. So that, that's the first step, right? We feel good about the, the greater metro area because that's going to dictate a lot about what happens in all the specific submarkets. So we pass that hurdle. So, you know, the next thing I would look at, if you're looking at, a, let's say, new class A multifamily properties, you need to understand how many of my key demand cohorts Let's just say that 25 to 44 year old higher earning like demographic to so say over 75,000 household income. How many of them are there in my neighborhood and in my zip code? And how many of them are there in the surrounding zip code? And then how does that relate to how much existing um, class A supply demands? And do we feel like that ratio suggests that there's, let's just say, untapped demand? And, you know, what, what I did for a client pretty recently, it was, it was a similar type of discussion that we were looking at the ratio of newly built class A housing to the amount of 25 to 44-year-old wealthy households. And this data came from the U.S. Census on the zip code level. And we saw that the ratio in the zip code uh, was so far in excess, like there were so many more wealthy millennial households and newly built 
Class A. And we were able to know that because we actually compared it to every other zip code in America, right? So we actually have all this context and clarity for actually what a good ratio there is to suggest like untapped demand is going to lead to good absorption and rent growth. And that gave them so much clarity about like, all right, this is a good project to pursue. Um, and so. Where, where was that? Columbus, what market Ohio. was that? Which I should have told you that we can't talk about Columbus considering that we're a Michigan <laughs> Wolverine. But you got to get over that, man. <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's such a, a good example that I'll let it slide just this once. <laughs> and, and hopefully any, any, any Wolverines that are listening, please forgive me. Um, for allowing a Columbus example to exist. No, that's great. I think, um, you know, one of the important parts is, is uh, you know, as you're looking at site selection and, and sub-market, I think that's one of the key components of our scoring methodology when our, when our team's evaluating deals is that in particular, right? Um, you know, demographics, right? But then the all the different sub-categories that we're evaluating, you know, is looking at as, at that growth and is it the right type of growth that's coming, which is why a lot of these markets, if you really look at, you know, where the family offices like to be in Phoenix, Austin, Dallas, Nashville, Tampa, Raleigh, Durham, you know, it just backs up your point to, to a lot of the growth that's, that's coming from the millennial side. What about affordability? Is that, um, I know I've, I've watched some of your videos of late um, and, and you talk a lot about that and, and that could be driving, some of the growth and migration out of out of the coastal markets. Um, you know, talk to me about yeah. Some views well, on that. I mean, look, twenty twenty. I, uh, I like to say twenty twenty was the year of affordability. If you were to chart rent growth basically over the last year by market, the lower that the rent was in the market prior to COVID, the higher that it's grown, right? And the more expensive the rent was prior to COVID, the more it's fallen. And so you're definitely seeing a trend of um, people exiting these higher price areas. And just to, and this is something a lot of people don't realize, this was happening already before COVID. Like there was already this migration trend. If you look at places like San Fran and New York, they were already losing people prior to COVID. And COVID just simply kind of kicked it into higher gear. And like you said, a lot of those people are choosing to migrate to more affordable areas, which... You know, maybe a place like Phoenix 15 years ago or a place like Austin 15 years ago didn't have quite, you know, 15 years ago, it didn't have quite the economic strength to support, you know, these higher end jobs. But now it does. Now they do. Right. And now that Phoenix and Austin and Atlanta can go head to head with San Fran and New York in terms of jobs and industry, I think the choice is really clear for a lot of people. I'd rather pay 1500 a month in rent than 3000 a month. And so that's uh, that's definitely a trend we're seeing. Now I'll say this: it's not as if the migration numbers to these cities like doubled in the last year, right? Like they went up probably fifteen percent, which is a, is like a big, big increase. So it's not as if we're seeing like crazy, crazy increases uh, in migration, but they're certainly substantial enough that they're going to impact uh, the local real estate market. Well, yeah, and, and listen. I'm a big, still a big believer in New York. I mean, you, you just cannot replicate New York. You can't. I mean, from an energy standpoint, and and it's always going to attract talent. But I think, you know, even over the last five years, obviously pre-COVID, five six years as we've been raising capital, I think 
more and more uh, investors, family offices are open to other markets where there are some that would say, we, we only want to be in gateway. Uh, and now that's changed. It's shifted. And it's shifted with that growth um, in, in some of the other markets. Now they're more open to some of these secondary markets or the darlings of the world. And, and I think it's great to see. So maybe, you know, especially COVID, maybe it's been the equalizer to create more interest in, in these markets and bring more institutional level investors to those markets. And I think that's, that's actually one of the uh, questions that come up that comes up when investors are, are talking about a project that we're raising on. They want to know, you know, who's, who's buying in these markets, right? What institutional level investors are, are buying multifamily projects that are stabilized? They want to make sure that there's other institutions around, uh, really with their eye in an exit, whether it be a five-year hold or if it's an opportunity zone in, in 10 years. And I think that is, that is something that I just feel that investors are more open to some of these secondary markets than maybe they were, uh, you know, even before COVID. I think 2020 has has broadened that, and in foreign investors yeah. as well. Um, there's a lot lot of foreign investors who would only be gateway, right? They, so show me San Fran, show me New York, show me LA. Other than that, don't send me. Now, you know, I saw an article the other day. You know, speaking of Austin, where where you're headquartered. Uh, where Austin was the uh, best or, or highly sought after market for foreign investors, which, you know, historically is, is unheard of. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And it's a really positive development that we're seeing a more of a broadening in the geographic focus of institutional investors, family offices. Actually, to your point, one of my clients, they're raising a um, multifamily investment fund, uh, actually they're based out of Chile and Colombia, South America. And, you know, they, they came to me and they said, you know, we actually, you know, we want to have this, they call secondary market strategy, right? Like they already knew ahead of time, like they didn't want to deal with New York and Boston and San Fran and crazy high prices, right? And the super low yields. So they already knew it like, kind of ahead of time. They didn't want to deal with that. So I helped them, you know, navigate, you know, it can be a daunting task of saying, all right, there's all these quote unquote secondary markets. Right, which a lot of more is a secondary one, but how, how do we figure out which ones to invest in? Right, how do we figure out which ones have most legitimate growth prospects? And I help them do that, you know, from a strategy standpoint. But then, to your point, what I also help them do is communicate to their uh, equity investors that strategy because a lot of their equity investors had still the more old school mentality of what you just said New York, LA, San Fran. Um, and they just kind of needed to be educated on what the data said, right? On all these trends on migration and job, right? And when you see that data laid out, all of a sudden the notion of a gateway market starts to lose its um, luster a little bit. Because I think most people understand that ultimately it's jobs and migration counts which are going to dictate absorption and rent growth and price appreciation. And that those institutional investors, they're going to come, right? Because ultimately, um, people want growth. So um, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think we're seeing a broadening in that. I think it's a great, it's a great thing that, that we're seeing. That. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a great example. Um, you know, as you're, you know, I would say of all the markets in the country, two of arguably 
the hottest markets uh, that are that I would say family offices are always asking me about. Right, we want to see deals in Phoenix yeah. and Austin, and you know I love both markets. We've done projects in both. Uh, you know, an opportunity zone deal in in uh, Austin, which our last podcast was about, um, where we brought a family office in, and then Phoenix, which we just um, got a few term sheets, but signed up with a group um, that's in due diligence, knock on wood. Uh, but two markets that are highly sought after. You know, as you're looking at those markets, if a developer came to you or a family office came to you and said, okay, Nick, uh, positives on both, but uh, how should we be looking at this if we only wanted to go with one? Or, you know, where should we put more, uh, where should we allocate more capital to Austin or, or Phoenix? So I'm yeah. sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> no, but, it's a uh, great question. Oh. Both of those markets are literally like, the behemoth growth markets. You know, I was just looking at 2020, 2020 migration figures by Metro yesterday. Phoenix came in number one. Yeah, yeah I saw you posted you posted that on social media where Phoenix, Phoenix. took the top spot. So yeah, maybe that's Phoenix came in number one. Ninety thousand people net people moved into Phoenix in twenty twenty. Fifty three thousand moved into Austin, which was third place. Uh, and actually, on a percentage basis, Austin is a little higher relative to total population. I mean, both of those markets have great growth, um, and you can't really complain with that. What the decision-making process for me would come down to is supply, um, and looking at you know the permitting pipeline. Because again, permitting is great. The permitting data is really valuable because it's this window into eighteen months from now, right? And you know what we basically seen. We've seen upticks in permitting in both markets, as you would un, you know, expect, but you know, Austin has had just like a much bigger uptick in permitting than Phoenix. And so whereas permitting in Phoenix for multi might have increased by 20, 25% in the last year or two, it's increased by like 50% in Austin. So I would, if I had to pick between the two, I'm a betting man, I'm putting my money on Phoenix right now, just because I think it's, it's kind of su supply and demand combinations a little stronger. Really, if you can't argue with either market from a, from a growth perspective, especially if you're a, uh, you know, you're a long-term hold, long-term hold investor. Yeah, that that's obviously a big uh, part of the decision making. I think for for our particular project here that that we recently raised on, uh, there, you know, in in this submarket, the downtown submarket, there there was, you know, there's obviously supply coming on, but the life science sector and other tech sectors in and around the ASU downtown campus were big demand drivers and, you know, as an opportunity zone project, you have to hold for 10 years. So it's, it's the right amount of runway to really realize the value in that investment. And, you know, I think that's ultimately why so many groups eventually got comfortable with it is that there's, there's so much strong demand for the right type of jobs. Um, and, and almost some of that development um, and, and as we're looking at deals and, and framing a deal, you know, one of the things we look at, if it's multifamily, the next thing we go is, well, what else is going on in the market? Uh, and in this particular situation, there's like 4 million square feet of medical centric development office going on, life science and just MOB in general. And that was uh, something that was an indicator for us that, you know, there's there's going to be 
growth here and, the, and a strong demand driver. So this deal over 10 years is going to realize, um, you know, where it's at. So, uh, no, that's, that's a good compare and contrast. And, you know, those two markets, you really can't go wrong um, in those two markets in terms of growth. I feel like every other day there's a new company that's that's migrating to to Austin or, or Phoenix and really diverse uh, diverse diversity in industry as well, which yeah. I think is, is a positive yeah, for those two markets. Diversity in industry part is a great one because, um, you know, one thing I, I do and what I think is important to do is have a historical perspective, right? Let's understand how the last three recessions look, right? In terms of where, where the jobs were lost and how that impacted real estate values. And, you know, what, the one thing that's clear is that the most resilient economies in a downturn, right? Those are the ones that have the most diverse employment base. And I think that's, especially with Phoenix, what I like that's going on right now, like you said, they have all these kind of nascent industries that uh, are really burgeoning, whether it be, like you said, medical and life sciences, uh, electric vehicles, they have a lot of different things going on in Phoenix on top of being just such a big, such a big metro to begin with. Um, that I, you know, that's it's definitely a point in the positive direction in terms of diversity of industry. That's great. What about uh, any other markets that you have your eye on um, from a, from a uh, growth and where maybe, maybe, uh, investors haven't necessarily uh, oh, yeah. looked at yet. Yeah, and this is a great conversation, right? Because there's a lot of markets out there in the U.S. that, you know, a lot of people say to me, look, I want to find the next Austin. Like, I think some people are like, oh, geez, Austin, like, they, I might have missed the boat. And they want to find the next one, right? They want to get into Austin, like, 2010 investors in Austin. Like, they want to be that type of investor in that next growth market. And so, yeah, there's definitely some markets out there that have some intriguing potential. I love the ABC triangle in the Southeast. That'd be Atlanta, Birmingham, Chattanooga. Um, and then Huntsville, Alabama is located right in the middle of that triangle. I think that's a super interesting area because you actually have lots of really high-end jobs uh, going into that area, especially in Huntsville. And you don't have quite the same level of supply expansion. So those, those markets... There's not as much new supply. They're much more affordable. And a lot of them are having really intriguing growth figures. And I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere in that mix over the next 10 to 15 years, one of those markets popped out as being like one of the next Austin's. Um, Fayetteville, Arkansas is also another one that's uh, you know really, really intriguing as well. Well, there you have it. You've heard it here first. The prediction we're, we're going to save this one. And we're, yeah, we're going we're to circle back and, uh, and see <laughs> if any of those popped. Uh, well, listen, you know, I, I try to keep these to around 30, 30 minutes. This has been great. And again, I think uh, the whole message for us from Cadence's standpoint is is always looking at ways to make each deal, make each sponsor more institutionally attractive and the way to do it these days is to integrate data um nick how whether it be a family office or a developer how can they contact you or, or reach out to you to um to help have you help them uh, with their investment thesis or make better decisions on slight, slight yeah like yeah that's a great question so uh go to 
www.reventureconsulting.com and go to the contact form uh, section there and submit a contact form with a brief description kind of about what, what the real estate strategy and situation is. And that's the best way to reach me. Additionally, I also have a pretty active YouTube channel. It's Reventure Consulting on YouTube. It's a great way. A lot of my clients have um, kind of watched the YouTube channel and seen the videos there and started to get comfortable and familiar with the ideas. So ReVentureConsulting.com and ReVenture Consulting on YouTube. Perfect. Well, listen, Nick, I really appreciate uh, you spending some time with us today. Hopefully, hopefully everyone hears and, and reaches out to you and, and uh, I can't wait to get a pro forma that is anchored in data, uh, supporting supporting the thesis and them telling me that uh, uh, Nick, Nick helped them out with the yeah, idea. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing that as well. All right, great. Well, listen, I appreciate All it right, and uh, we'll talk soon. Take care. Bye.